Alright, I'm Nate. And I'm Mike. And due to some technical difficulties, we have both just lit up our cigar. I'm about an inch, an inch in, but uh, Mike will tell us what we're smoking. We are smoking a Cohiba Black, and the size is a Robusto, because I like Robustos. Yes, and I was going to say that uh, usually, as long as we're not in the bedroom, we do uh, whatever Mike likes. Um, but uh, the first couple puffs off of this cigar were, were very tasty, um, not really bitter at all. And then uh, now being an inch in, um, I don't know, I feel like it's a really decent, uh, decently made cigar here. See, and I just, uh, mine went out, and I had to relight, and I'm about a quarter inch in. So, from that, everybody can tell who was having the difficulties. <laughs> Our uh, third co-host decided to chew up my microphone and my headphones, so I've had to uh, make a do with a different setup. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to start a, a third co-host uh, destruction GoFundMe or something. Oh, we are we are making her a kennel. Uh, okay, because. Uh, yeah, she was naughty over the weekend when I was gone. Yes, and what were so, you doing when you were gone? I was paddle fishing. And Ooh. I saw I saw pictures. Now, what do you do with those? Do you eat them? Do you throw them at friends? Uh, you eat them. I uh, Actually, today, I filleted it up. I didn't fillet the fish. They, I brought it to the fish cleaning station. and uh, But I packaged it, cut it up, and cleaned the red off and packaged it. I got... Uh, Oh, eight sandwich bags full, something like that. So, and uh, what is it? Is it uh, comparable to another kind of fish uh, that our um, listeners may or may not have tried? It's white, firm, and flaky, but it has fat in it, and you have to get that f- fat out, otherwise it's real fishy. But it's uh, you know similar to like a halibut, something like that. Some halibut tastes good without having to doctor it up. Okay. Paddlefish, you have to get that fat out so you can boil it or brine it or something like that. Uh, grill it. If you grill it, it'll it'll cook the fat right out of it. Okay. Do they uh, they they were quite a bit larger than I kind of thought uh, when you said paddlefish. Of course, I've never been paddle fishing, uh, so I wasn't sure if you were uh, fishing for a fish called a paddlefish or using like a paddle board to go fishing. Yes. It is a fish called a paddlefish, and I caught a little one. Okay, but they're big. Lineup. I mean, they look big. Um, oh, yeah, they're huge. I mean, the one I caught was 18 pounds, but, um, you know, you can routinely get them 60 pounds. You know, that's a pretty normal-sized paddlefish. Uh, record, the records vary, but they can get upwards of 140, 150 pounds as um, the largest, you know, they get. I have a picture. I caught a 28-pounder a couple years ago, and it was right next to an 80-pounder. And okay. it looked so small. And that yet that 28-pounder uh, was twice as big as that 18 that I caught, you know, as far as size. So do you need, uh, do you need a, a, like, a deep-sea pole? Do you need a special pole for those? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I have a 10-foot ugly stick. Okay. Uh, with a... Uh, so- a big salt striker reel, and I, I think I have 30, I have 30 or 40 pound monofilament. Okay. So, so my little walleye, walleye rod wouldn't do it, huh? No, no, I don't think so. I've got a, I've got a musky rod and reel. Would that, 
Would that do it, or would I need something bigger still, probably? I mean, it would do it if you did catch a 70-pounder. You know, that's the thing, is that you're snagging them. You cast into the river with a weight and a number 12 treble, and you try to snag them. Okay. So you don't know what you're going to get, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you have no idea. You could snag into a 100-pounder, you could snag into a 10-pounder. So a musky rod would definitely handle... A 28-pounder or a 30-pounder, but probably not a 70-pounder. Yeah. And uh, they'll jump out of the water like a marlin. I mean, it's oh, pretty cool. impressive when they fight. Yeah. Yeah, they don't like getting jabbed. <laughs> Shocker, right? <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. But. Yeah, we'll have to go sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. I, I think this is my sixth or seventh year. Okay. Uh, in a row going. Other than they canceled it one year for COVID. Yeah, because the fish were were worried for their safety. Yes, yes, the fish were very worried. <laughs> but yeah, it's well, what's our uh, what's our main topic today then? I think our main topic is going to be our favorite historical fact and or historical period. I have two facts. Okay, perfect. Uh, I think yeah. before we get into that though, we should talk about a little bit of legislation that's um, <clears throat> kind of working its way through. And, okay. it, I, and I don't think it's the one you think that it's going to be. Um, I wanted to talk about the FDA and their banning menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Oh, I have not heard of this. Well, they're trying to keep uh, cigarettes and cigars out of the hands of children. And so they're banning uh, menthol cigarettes, which makes sense, uh, I guess, because it's like I, I don't smoke cigarettes and I haven't smoked a menthol cigarette that I'm aware of, but they taste kind of minty. Um, and then I was really worried because we were talking about doing the uh, CAO uh, flavor off. <clears throat> uh, the CAO flavor off. And I was thinking, well, are those going to be banned under these new new rules? And so I did some digging. Uh, for our listeners who might not have done digging or might not have heard about this, and they're really just banning uh, like grape, cherry, um, anything that's overly uh, very Swisher Swedish, um, not Swedish oh, so like the country, but they're banning um, <laughs> cigars with a primary flavor additive. <laughs> I see. So they're they're banning blunts. Is that, that's that's what I'm picking up here. <laughs> yeah. So so just like the United States government made laws that somehow made pizza a vegetable, they are now making blunts and Swisher sweets uh, legally cigars. I see. Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I remember when yeah. they banned flavored cigarettes, and that really bummed me out because uh, I used to get a, a brand of cigarettes called Sweet Dreams, and they were German-made, and um, they were chocolate-flavored. And they oh. had a couple different other flavors, too, but I liked the chocolate ones. And uh, I really loved those things. They were a nice little treat every now and again. Yeah. And, uh, you know... I, I I liked them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that how they're we should... not going to ban the vape juice since that's uh, oh that's that's not that's dangerous at days. all. That's not dangerous at all, Mike. Sure. You know. Sure. Unless you buy those uh, vape cartridges from like the Seven Eleven, then they explode in your lungs or something. If uh, the news headlines are to be believed. <laughs> Uh, but I would hope that um, none of our listeners would do such a thing and they would go to like a reputable online shop or something 
um, yes. and not, not go to the 7-Eleven for your fix. Um, but I think for our historical facts, tidbits, periods, whatnot, uh, since you have two and I just have one, why don't you lead us off, then we'll do mine, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with yours. Perfect. Um, both of mine are relevant to current politics, interestingly enough. Uh, as everybody knows, there's perennial things that Americans all fight about. And both of these historical documents uh, pretty much make the debate pointless. But there's a group of people that like to just deny reality and pretend like they don't exist. <laughs> Me when a work email comes through. Mm-hmm. Mm. This email does not exist. You have not found me. <laughs> so, the first is the Treaty of Tripoli, which was signed in 1796 uh, while John Adams was president, uh, one of the founding fathers. FYI, for those who are not Americans, uh, and John not, Adams not was his the second son, president. Not his son, John Quincy Adams, who was also president. Who else? No, the. Uh, the the old the, the OG John Adams, the OG. my favorite president. <laughs> but he's my favorite president and definitely my favorite founding father. Uh, interesting character. But uh, the Treaty of Tripoli was what the United States signed with a bunch of Barbary pirate pirates who were seizing Americans and were enslaving them. Uh, and America didn't want uh, Americans, white American citizens, to be enslaved in Africa. So we uh, started a war with these pirates, basically. Uh, and they were Muslim pirates. So uh, the <clears throat> original treaty was made in uh, uh, Arabic, and then it was translated into English, and the United States ratified it. And ultimately, the Islamic treaty or the Arab uh, treaty in Arabic and the treaty in English were not the same treaty. So they re-signed a new treaty uh, I believe in 1806. Excuse me, 1805. One second here. Uh, so uh, it's very interesting. And it was signed uh, unanimously passed by the Senate. And all those senators were, of course, founding fathers, given the time period. Uh, the reason why all this background information is relevant is because in the Treaty of Tripoli, which have you heard of the Treaty of Tripoli, Nate? I've heard of the shores of Tripoli. Um, yes. And the, the Treaty of Tripoli does sound vaguely familiar, though I couldn't tell you uh, with any certainty what what it had to do about, and, and I wouldn't have known it was having to do with pirates until you told me uh, just oh, now. Okay. Sure. So um, the important part to our current situation was that the uh, English translation or the American version has an Article 11, and Article 11 has... John Adams's uh, view of what the separation of church and state is. So Article 11 reads, and this was unanimously passed by the founding fathers and endorsed by a founding father president, remember. Yes. So, as the government of the United States of America is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character or enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimin, a.k.a. Muslims, and as the said states never entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan, 
nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. Uh, isn't that interesting? I think I know now why they don't teach the Treaty of Tripoli in um, government-run schools. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, or in, I should say in um, you know Christian indoctrination um, churches. <laughs> right. Uh, it's insane that uh, a document like this exists and uh, people argue about it. And interestingly enough, modern people argue that it should be discounted because it wasn't in the Arabic version of the treaty. Even though it was in the English version that everybody read and everybody signed. The treaty is only two pages long. So yes. Old OG treaty, you know, very, very simple. Yeah, it's not uh, the Apple terms and conditions. No, it was not. Uh, you can look up, uh, what would it be called, a PDF version of it, and there's only 12 articles in the treaty. And they're all... Two, two or three sentences long. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's not exactly complicated to understand what was going on. But uh, I can't believe they reasons. had. I can't believe they had PDFs back then. I know, right? Yeah, you know, John Adams wanted it uh, uploaded to a PDF. He put it uh, in the founding fathers' cloud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of a third uh, fun fact, but we can we can get to that later. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I can't believe, you know, it, this is always a hot topic even today. Yeah. With and, religious and types. Even, even without the um, Treaty of Tripoli, which I did do some researching on whether or not our country was, you know, quote unquote Christian or not. Uh, and uh, even without the Treaty of Tripoli, surprise, it's, it's not. Um, most of the founding fathers didn't, uh, weren't, weren't, didn't consider themselves Christian, for one. Uh, Thomas Jefferson actually wrote the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where he took all of the miracles out of it, out of the New Testament, and uh, it was basically just uh, more like a philosophy book for him of, of you know guiding principles and none of the what he considered to be kind of like the magic, <laughs> uh, magic spells, uh, and things like that. Uh, but I think they were um, was is it Unitarian? Is that what uh, Adams was Unitarian? Unitarian. Yep. So they were they were mostly not Christians. No, in in the strict sense. No, not and uh, Ben Franklin certainly wasn't a Christian. <laughs> he flew At least that not in any practical sense. Yeah, he flew that kite up to try and um, lightning strike God. Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready for my uh, my fact? Absolutely. And uh, luckily uh, for me, my fact coincides with one of my favorite historical periods. Uh, which is the Lewis and Clark expedition, the uh, westward expansion. Uh, and oh, I'm okay. very, and I'm very, very pro Lewis and Clark. Um, I'm all about stealing land from the native populace. And uh, <laughs> okay, so somebody's going to take that and make a clip. So when I run for president later, um, I won't be able to get any votes. But. Um, I'm not really for that. And actually, I read one of my favorite books about Lewis and Clark. I went on a huge Lewis and Clark spree last year. I found all these books. I researched them. Um, don't bother with Stephen Ambrose. Sorry, Stephen. Um, or not sorry. I guess he's very um, divisive in the historian community. Um, 
Yes, he, he is. A, he'll write about anything, basically. Um, but I read one of my favorite ones was Lewis and Clark among the Indians, and it was it was less about them getting from point A to point B, but how their Native American relations went, and they basically are a very good case study for how it should be done. Um, oh. And they were very, very good with all of the tribes that they encountered. And they were very friendly with all the tribes they encountered. And they, I mean, they had to be out of necessity um, for, for one point. Um, but Thomas Jefferson gave them the edict to go and be nice to these tribes and learn about these tribes. Um, and to learn about the native populations that were now under uh, U.S. rule, uh, more or less. Or within U.S. lands, however they kind of, you know, phrase it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in reading these books, and, and I've got a, a slew of suggestions uh, if anybody is, is interested. Um, but, you know, Lewis and Clark Among the, Among the Indians uh, was a very good one. And it really kind of opened my eyes to all of the things that they actually did. Uh, because in most like common common conversation, Lewis and Clark, oh yeah, they went and found the the west side of this the, the country, uh, which isn't really what they did. They um, were trying to find the quickest like overland route um, to the west side. They knew there was a west side. Um, but what I read in all of these books, they had a little addendum either at the beginning or in the back talking about Sacagawea. Mm-hmm. So my favorite historical fact is if you read all the journals, and they're not just the Lewis and Clark journals, it's the Lewis and Clark Expeditions journals because they encouraged every member to keep a journal. Uh, now, every member didn't necessarily, or they didn't write as as um, often as Lewis and Clark did, but they all wrote uh, journals. And these notes about Sacagawea were basically, okay, I know we have to mention Sacagawea, but if you read the journals, she actually doesn't really do anything. She was 16 year old, 16 years old with a newborn. She had her French fur trapper uh, husband slash owner. We weren't even sure if she was a slave or if they were married or whatever. Um, but uh, his name was Charbonneau. And, um, and she was, uh, I guess what they figured was she was kind of kidnapped from her home tribe by another tribe and then somehow got sold or married to this Charbonneau fur trapper, French fur fur trapper, and uh, hadn't been home since she was maybe 12 or 10 or 8, somewhere, really young. And uh, they get out there. And so everybody says, oh, yeah, if not for Sacagawea, the the expedition wouldn't have survived. Uh, But they go out there and they happen to be standing like in the backyard of her tribe. She doesn't recognize any of the landmarks, looks up across the river and sees her brother or cousin or something and says, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's basically all that there is about her in the, in the journals. Um, one of the two, um, kind of adopted or quasi adopted or educated her son, um, her and, and, um, Charbonneau's son. So I wanted to look up why, um, we minted a coin for Sacagawea, the dollar coin, Sacagawea dollar coin, why everybody loves Sacagawea when there's really no historical evidence that she did uh, a whole lot of anything. Now, maybe she did. Maybe she did, but not enough to warrant a lot of uh, text in the journals. Sure. So here's what I found out. Um, 
I found out that the Lewis and Clark expedition, if you're somebody who likes to romanticize history, if you want to create fiction, if you want to create a dramatic work based on the um, Lewis and Clark expedition, it's a shitty thing to try and base anything off of because you know what? They went all the way out, all the way back, and they lost one person due to appendicitis. Mm-hmm. There wasn't... Uh, I mean, yeah, sure, they re- encountered, like, a bear. Um, some of the tribes, like, the situations got a little, like, sticky. Um, got a little sticky, but really, there was... There's no death. Um, not a whole lot of, of excitement um, in terms of modern Hollywood. Or even really? not modern Hollywood. I guess I've never read any of the memoirs. Yeah. Um, I, I would... You know what? I'd say... I pick up Lewis and Clark among the Indians. That's probably your best best bet to kind of shine a whole new light on what they did. Um, but they didn't like there was really no danger, and so in um, so people started romanticizing it and putting out fictional versions. You know where where Sacagawea was the the one part of the love triangle between you know Clark and Lewis and and stuff, and and uh, Charbonneau was some kind of slaver and and whatever. Um, but what I found out was in 1893, um, a historian named Elliot Cowes, uh, it, and it looks like Coos, and the Coos deer is actually named after him, but it, it shouldn't be pronounced Coos deer, it should be pronounced Cowes deer. Um, so Elliot Cowes, he's not a historian. He's an army surgeon, and he was an avid traveler to the expedition sites. Uh, but what he did was he redrew Sacagawea's character, increased her participation in the journey. And it says that his work strayed widely from what was originally recorded about the expedition. And uh, those alterations that he made blossomed into expedition fiction. And here is probably the most important part. Um, that pro-feminist arguments contributed to the uplifting of Sacagawea's character and then anti-French sentiment was used to um, turn the fur trapper who did a lot more of the guide work um, into a kind of a crass and um, terrible person Um, because there was a lot of anti-French sentiment at the time and I guess the pro-feminists really uh, liked the idea that there was a 16-year-old female that saved the expedition even though that's not true. Interesting. That reminds me of uh, Washington Irving uh, making up the myth that uh, Columbus uh, set sail to prove the Earth was round. Oh, yeah. Which is a complete falsehood. (laughs) But people believe it. I thought he set sail to rape and pillage. (laughs) Well, kind of. That was kind of the goal. Just not on the continent he landed on. (laughs) Well, yeah. I have another little um, tidbit about Columbus real quick is um, that they were in what was it they landed where South America right uh yeah it was a and Hispaniola, they were yeah and the they island. were um they were raping and pillaging and the population was like whoa wait a second we thought you came here like as gods but you're clearly just a bunch of horny assholes and uh, because they knew the star charts and everything they knew a a um, lunar eclipse was coming. And so they said, well, if you don't let us continue raping your wives, we're going to blot out the sun or whatever. And, uh, and so like two days later, the eclipse happened <laughs> and, and they got, got to go back to raping all the, all the women. 
That's horrible. Horrible, but, uh, you know, amusing. <laughs> well, what do you do? Right. I wasn't it's there. In, it's in the past. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. It's, uh, I'm not it's, directly it's terrible, responsible but, for that. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's a good lesson in um, uh, stay in school and don't do drugs because then you'll know when the next eclipse is and you can um, not be right. taken advantage of if you're on the on the weaker side or, you know. Sure. Maybe it's a good lesson about uh, critical thinking and yeah. um, be questioning charlatans. So before your next tidbit, I'm about, I don't know, three quarters of an inch from the from the wrapper here, which I'm about to peel off. Um, but so far, it's been very steady, very consistent. Uh, mine as well. I'm about halfway through. Okay. It's and, not uh, uh, it's not overly dark. Um, but it has nice uh, nice characteristics, I think. A uh, nice yeah, it's kind of complex dark. flavor. It's, uh, not super sweet, but it's not uh, not offensive by any means. It's just pleasant. I was expecting that. I've had a co- this uh, particular cigar before. Okay. Um, Cohiba is a very popular brand, but I don't. Uh, well, I see why. I don't care for them because they usually don't have a lot of character. You know, they're, okay. they're just kind of a one note, pleasant. It's good, but it's just like, yeah, it's pleasant. You know, know, it's not. I don't think it's the best one we've smoked. Um, no, but it's, it's not. certainly it's certainly one that I might uh, you know might keep just for kind of a go to on a day where I don't have uh, anything else to smoke. I suppose. Right, something good to give uh, give somebody who doesn't smoke a lot of cigars, but they want to try a real cigar. You know. Yeah, I mean they've got the the brand cred. You know, everybody's heard of Cohiba, mostly. That's into cigars anyway. Oh, absolutely. They're very uh, famous. So it's mainstream, borderline. Yeah. Kind of like Omega Watches or something. Like uh, Everybody knows about it. So anyway, I guess uh, speaking of charlatans, my next two are also about American politics. And charlatans and people lying. <laughs> so we're going to fast forward in American history about 60 years to right before the Civil War. <laughs> where and could this possibly be going? Where could this possibly be going? So, uh, again, for anybody who is listening to us who's not an American, we still have these debates 150 years after our civil war about the causes and motivations of the political leaders. It was states' started. rights. It was states' rights. Yes, it was states' rights. And the, the you know, the average Confederate soldier was fighting for his oh, state all, all and these, his culture and his freedom. All these black people in chains back here. Don't, don't pay attention to them. States' rights. <laughs> right. It's called the lost cosmic lost cause myth for those who are not aware, and it's like a you know a romantic romanticization of the motivations of the Confederate forces, and uh, we're of course both Yankees, and uh, uh, Minnesota lost a significant portion of its soldiers in the Civil War, so I do have a slanted view uh, as a warning for everybody else. And my family's been in the North uh, since the 1650s, so that definitely skews my perception a little bit. <laughs> and I went to college in Oklahoma where everybody called me a Yankee, 
And I did some checking, and guess what? Oklahoma, not in the Civil War. So uh, <laughs> they uh, they weren't there. Sorry. Right. Yeah, they, they weren't involved, but, uh, you know, Southern culture is spread. So anyway, my second little uh, favorite fact here is a little thing called the Cornerstone Speech. And the Cornerstone Speech was made... March 21st, 1861, which is shortly before the start of the Civil War. And it was made by the vice president, the future vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. Ooh. Uh, ooh. Boo. Boo. Ooh, yes. So it's called the Cornerstone Speech um, because... Basically, the guy was trying to lay the cornerstone in the speech for the foundation of the Confederacy. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, very interesting. So here's a direct quote uh, from the speech. The new Constitution has put, put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, a.k.a. African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Jefferson in his forecast had anticipated this as the rock upon which the old union would split. He was right. No, 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 no. I'm glad he. I'm glad he put it to rest. I mean, thank goodness. Let's uh, let's all read it, and then we can stop arguing about it. Right. Yeah. It's like uh, you know, in the speech he said, "Our new government's foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery is is his natural and normal condition. This our new government is the first in the history of the world." Based upon the great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. So, you know. Well, the, I don't, the, I don't, <laughs> I don't like that. But I mean, if he knows what he's talking about, I just have to blindly accept it. I guess. <laughs> I don't agree with that. Obviously, I, <laughs> no, me either. Me either. <laughs> I was doing a parody of the people on the internet, and they're oh, like, yes. "Well, I read this. I, I don't quite like it, but it must be true." Oh yeah, it's like so. It's, it's kind of like the Treaty of Tripoli. It's so blatant and obvious that anybody who does any amount of research for themselves and who has an open mind knows that the South was fighting to preserve slavery. I don't know. Um, that still kind of sounds like states' rights to me. Yeah, <laughs> states' rights, <laughs> which uh, is now still a boogeyman in many ways. Not all the time, obviously. I'm a states' rights person myself. But uh, Well, I'm, uh, I like state states' rights. I believe in state rights but i don't believe in state rights to subjugate an entire population based on race sure uh well obviously right i shouldn't say sure yes yeah yeah yes. <laughs> sure uh, okay nate okay <laughs> you know uh I, I support states rights because i uh from working around the country with different people from around the country i kind of came to the understanding that the united states is an empire and that each state is kind of like a nation and we're radically different uh, from one another. You know, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and North Dakota are radically different, and they're certainly radically different than Louisiana and Arkansas, you know, or Mississippi. Like, those are 
those places are not anything alike in culture just because we share a similar language. Uh, yeah. For those who well, are from... And I'll from, say, like, even within the upper Midwest here, you know, like Minnesota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, we all kind of, like, hate each other um, or give each other grief about, oh, you're from Minnesota, oh, you're from Wisconsin, oh, you're in the Dakotas. You know, you can loop in, like, you know, Iowa and Illinois sometimes, too, but... By and large, like if there's like a, some southerner up here, we're gonna defend each other to that southerner, you know. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, so we've got kind of a shared culture, even though we have little like fractures or or good-natured ribbing uh, between the the different states, and even even um, you know like within the state, you know, if you're in the city center like I am, uh, versus uh, Mike or James in uh, somewhere else, um, northern Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, you still get you still get. Uh, some differences, but then we're all still, we're Minnesotans, we're living here. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, for those who don't live up north, uh, my local news puts subtitles on people from the south when they have them on the news show. So if they cover something going on in the south and they have an interview with somebody, they put subtitles because a lot of people <clears throat> cannot understand southern English, the southern so- dialect. Sometimes they just put subtitles on black people. <laughs> and you can understand you can understand them just fine. And you're like, uh, why, why though with the subtitles? I, I guess I've never noticed that, but I get, I, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I know that some of the Southerners, I, I never personally have a difficult time understanding them. But I worked with a lot of Southerners in the oil industry. Um, but I can see why they put uh, subtitles on because my nieces some of and them, nephews yeah. probably can't understand. You know. Um, and I do like I do watch uh, quite a few foreign films and things, and every once in a while is just like. Usually, I'm pretty good um, if they're you know speaking English, but they're you know got, they've got the accent. But sometimes it's like I have to go back and flip the subtitles on to say what the hell were they talking about there? Especially if they get um, like agitated or they're you know like passionate. Uh, oh sure, I mean it's the same when I get drunk, you know. Yeah, uh, I wish you came the with northern subtitles. accent get stronger. Oh, Siri barely understands me on my phone. It's crazy. I've had an iPhone since forever, you know. <laughs> and they still still has a hard time understanding what I want. But anyway, so that's uh yeah, that's the cornerstone speech and again, it's like an issue. I still don't understand we're arguing about it today with the crazy Confederate flags and uh People appear. Yeah, let's. You know, um, gets... Why don't we talk about the Confederate flags and the Confederate statues for a little bit? Um, because that should be should be just far enough out of um, kind of the popular focus or the mainstream sure. focus in the news uh, right now, especially with uh, certain leaked documents from the Supreme Court. Um, but you know, how do you feel about them tearing down Confederate statues and kind of banning the uh, Confederate flag? Well, first of all, the Confederate flag is a lie. It was a not a Confederate battle flag, and it wasn't a flag of the Confederacy. It was a flag that was rec- resurrected by the Ku Klux Klan to like wave around and terrorize black people. Now, now and, wait a second here, Mike. Uh, the the Ku Klux Klan, they're a states' rights advocacy group, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I uh, hope everybody knows I'm being incredibly sarcastic. Yes, um, uh, with that. So again, no offense I don't know, to anybody. I'm guessing that all of our listeners are Amer- are North American. Uh, we do have who, listeners overseas, though, Mike. Do we really? We do. 
Interesting. Well, he- hello, overseas listener. Or uh, uh, bienvenue. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the KKK, short for Ku Klux Klan, uh, is a white supremacist organization that's ebbed and flowed over the years. And um, they've been embraced by Hollywood in the past. Um, birth first, of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, the first American blockbuster shown by Democratic President Woodrow Wilson, President of I did not. I did not buy tickets to go see that. So I'm in the clear. <laughs> no. My conscience is clear. No, I, I've i never seen it. I kind of want to watch it. I've um, seen clips from it in film school. Sure. Um, it is pretty propaganda-y. Oh, I'm, I, I can imagine that the super racist uh, Woodrow Wilson... But is it is it is it more is it more racist than Disney's Song of the South? I don't know. I don't. I actually have a bootleg copy, and I haven't watched it yet. You mean um, you have a legal copy you legally acquired through the course I, of legal daily citizen activities? Yes, I I legally acquired it, and it is supposedly a German a German copy because they sold it there. Uh, ah, why wouldn't they? And why I, wouldn't I, they? My, gra- my grandma was full blooded German, so I'm like I love some German things, but. Um, Sometimes it's like Germany, man. It was two world wars you started. Um, uh, well, my next fact is about uh, that particular incident that has not been named yet. Well, good segue. <laughs> Let's go. Yes. Let's do it. Perfect. So I found this out when I was in college uh, going for history, and I had to write myself a little paper, and I wrote a paper about Holocaust denialism, uh, which was a pretty hot topic like 20 years ago. I don't know how hot it is now, but... Uh, I know you that still there's... see it making the rounds, though. Like every once in a while, a politician or a celebrity gets busted because they either denied that the Holocaust happened or they compared something incredibly mundane and trivial to the Holocaust. Absolutely. Um, I know that the alt-right, they love Holocaust denial. Uh, they love it. They love it. I don't know why it's so popular amongst that certain sect of right-wingers, but they enjoy it uh, for some reason. So my fun fact was that uh, the American government upper levels knew that the Holocaust was going on uh, early on, like late thirties, early forties, before we even, we being the United States entered the war and FDR kept this information tight to his clothes uh, to the point where Eisenhower so is this, I'm sorry, just so that I'm, I'm clear and our listeners are clear, is mm-hmm. this is this something true or is this something Holocaust deniers are saying? No, this is something true. Okay. That I just wanted uh, to clear, defeats, clear that up. That, that defeats the argument of the Holocaust deniers. Uh, so this was a state secret uh, to the point where Eisenhower, who was the leader of the Allied forces in Europe, once the Americans got involved, he was not aware that the Holocaust was going on. So when American troops, British and American troops, started liberating Holocaust camps, he started getting this information, and he had a hard time okay, believing yeah. it. He uh, went onto the ground, and he saw what was happening. He could barely believe it, uh, especially since he was a high-level member of the government. Yeah, wasn't he, he president or something? <clears throat> he became president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, in his infinite wisdom, started documenting their 
taking over the camps and taking pictures of the the prisoners and taking pictures of the bodies and taking pictures of the bone piles and taking pictures of the hangings and taking pictures of the tortured victims and taking pictures of the Nazi propaganda and of the barracks and everything. They actually sent, uh, they sent a, uh, and I should know off the top of my head, I didn't know we were going to talk about this or I would have looked it up, but and you can't actually get it in America. You have to buy this documentary that was shot in one of the Holocaust camps, in one of the concentration camps. They sent, I want to say like Stanley Kubrick to go film it. Because oh, wow. they, they, because they thought, uh, they thought nobody, nobody is going to believe this. Like these are horrors beyond anyone's imagination. Nobody's going to believe this. So they brought in a big Hollywood director, sure, like famous to go to go film this stuff. And um, it's cost prohibitive to pick up because uh, you can't get it here. So you have to bu- order it from overseas. And uh, they're the only ones with the footage. Um, You're saying but, that in the land of the free, home of the brave, our government is censoring uh, precious information? No, it's state. It's states' rights. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's not funny at all. We're talking about a very serious topic. But uh, I know, I know. I, I, I'm not trying to poke light at what happened or, or whatever. But no, there. No, you no. know, uh, I think I'm hoping that for there, the people who deny the Holocaust is yes, what I'm doing. And, and those people who deny the, those things deny that we're not actually a Christian nation. Those are the people suppressing this sort of information, and they're high enough up where the average American. It's a lot, awful lot of work to get to some of these things. Well, it can be the uh, well. I'm still not to my fun fact yet. Yes, I'm the sorry. only reason why I know about this is because I was a history major in college and had to write a paper on it. Yes. So I had to go and find, uh, you know, original sources. <clears throat> so anyway, Eisenhower did, uh, had the notion that people in the future would deny the Holocaust because it's unbelievable, even to him. And he was there. Yeah. So the Eisenhower uh, ordered all these documents to be created, pictures, apparently a film. But the fun thing or the fact is that anyone can go to the Eisenhower Library, which is a government-run institution. You can go onto the website, and you can see the images from the Holocaust. Okay. You can go to the Eisenhower Library. You can go on the website, and you can see the proof that the Holocaust is real. And it's pretty gruesome. Uh, some of them. You know, you're, you're talking yeah. uh, uh, piles of ashes mixed with bones, you know, uh, mass graves. Uh, all sorts of uh, stuff. Uh, pictures of Eisenhower and uh, Patton and, and Bradley uh, on tour at the concentration camps. Like, pictures of them there, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, so if it it was a pretty big cover-up. It was, I know there's a, back when I was paying attention, it was always like, oh, they're making it up. Or, oh, it's a conspiracy. And it's like, you have pictures of these uh, generals next to mass graves open with bodies. Uh, yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. Uh, well, they're the, uh, kind of the same, um, of the same cloth as the people who deny the moon landing. And they say, oh, it was faked with computer imagery. And then you look at um, CGI from like 2005 and you're like, how did we even watch this mm-hmm. uh, with some CGI? Um yeah, I can't. I can't imagine um, denying that because it's not. It shouldn't be like a political thing. Like people died. Like people's entire families were wiped off of the planet. 
um, you know, entire lines of families, like family, family generations, like just ended. Um, and it's not about you, whether or not you think it did or didn't happen. You're, you're minimizing somebody else's experience, somebody else's family experience, somebody else's tragedy, you know? Sure. I mean, it, it, it doesn't benefit anybody politically that I can understand, but yet people want to fight about it or they want to use it. They want to manipulate it to make it a political point. Uh, yeah. To a certain extent, I understand why denial of the Holocaust against the Native American population is still going on because that is politically potent uh, in yeah. some cases, uh, which is a total crap with that's a long history of things going 400 over 400 years and i could do research and we could talk about that someday i guess but uh even my uh i know people that uh were at the residential schools where they tried to you know kill the indian and save the man was their motto yep. you know it's like uh, like the re-education uh, um they right. did all that and they and they've been doing that too uh, more recently, and this is more politically charged than uh, the Native American kind of reeducation camps. Uh, but like the uh, gay conversion centers, like those therapy centers. Oh right, right. Like Michelle Bachman's husband. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Michelle Bachman was a congresswoman from Minnesota who has a husband who is clearly a closeted homosexual. Yeah, and uh, I actually met Michelle Bachman. Oh really? Yeah. How was she? Uh, except for, you know, asking if I thought her husband was attractive. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. I did. I met her, uh, but I was working for the Boy Scouts of America and, uh, they are not, and recently they've been trying to change because they've been forced to, but they have not historically been an atheist or, um, alternative lifestyle friendly organization. So I was not able to get into the weeds with her as it were on any on any, on any political things. So it was just more of a, hi, nice to meet you. Um, and then under my breath, I hope you burn in hell. <laughs> if there is such a place. Well, Michelle Bachman's district had Stearns County in it, which not coincidentally has the highest rate of incest in the whole state. So. Huzzah. <laughs> Keep it in the family. That's right. <laughs> but... Yeah, so that, those are all, I'm sure that my American listeners noticed a slant of my fun facts because they all go against <laughs> a certain narrative that is told uh, in the United States by certain people. <laughs> yes, I have one Founding Father fun fact uh, that <clears throat> okay. I think you might enjoy. You might you might know it, you might not. Um, the first dinosaur fossil... Uh, was discovered after uh, after George Washington died, so he had no idea there were even dinosaurs um, on the planet. I did not know that. I did not know that. I know that uh, when I went to Mount Vernon, it was summertime. And uh, for those who don't know, Minnesota summertime, especially up north, very humid and very hot. Uh, 90 degrees, 100% humidity. Well, that's and not that's not hot for Florida or Texas or Arizona. No, it's not. It's not hot for those places, but it also gets to be negative thirty here for like a month. But it, just a you know, as a frame of reference, it's hundred percent humidity and ninety degrees where I live in the summer. And I went there during the summer, and I thought I was gonna die 
uh, in Virginia there. It was absolutely horrible. I, I came, definitely came away thinking that George Washington was an asshole uh, with his slaves. <laughs> you know, because it's like, who the fuck could consciously make people work in this shit? It's awful. <laughs> you know, it's just horrible. Yeah, but I guess like everybody was working in that shit. And um, from the uh, book we talked about a couple episodes back, uh, The Black Rednecks and White Liberals, um, he actually talked about George Washington and his kind of treatment of slaves. Sure. And he was um, actively buying slaves uh, because in his will, he gave all of his slaves freedom. Yes. Yes. Uh, but that doesn't change the, the weather. No, it doesn't change in, the weather. In, uh, in D.C. And um, and actually for about a six-year, six or seven-year period, I was going to Washington, D.C. every other year um, for reasons I can't talk about now um, because they've got a contract out on me. But uh, no, it was with the Boy Scouts. I would go and we went, took a family trip. And so I went like every other year for the Boy Scouts. and uh, But I got to see a lot of D.C. that way, which is pretty cool. Oh, it's very cool. I would definitely want to go back. To go to the Smithsonian specifically, I really enjoyed. Yes, yes, I really enjoyed that. I liked uh, the Air and Space. Um, that one's really cool. Oh, I didn't go there. I didn't go there. I went to the two art museums, and yep. uh, those American are cool History too. Museum. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they're all cool. Like, oh yeah, it's um, you could spend uh, a lot of time there. Uh, yeah. weeks and weeks probably. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm done with my cigar. Um, I think it was very good. Um, de- definitely not, um, not like a favorite. I wouldn't say favorite. I would say uh, it's very firmly in the slightly above average. See, and now I have about an inch and a half left and I'm getting a very ashy, a- uh, sour taste out of the cigar. Okay. Mine kind of went a little sour and I, I just put it out cause I've got about an inch left. Um, mm. Maybe about an inch and a, I don't know, maybe about an inch and a half. So I just put it out because <laughs> I'm like, eh, okay. Um, but it, was, right. it was, you know, like the, the pole was getting very hot. And um, I was like, eh, it's probably about done. So, uh, but, you know, I think uh, by and large, I would smoke a Cohiba over our um, Bin Maduro. Not but if I would you smoke, put tequila on it. See, I would smoke our tequila <laughs> Bin Maduro over a Cohiba any day. Um, uh, absolutely. Me too. Uh, yes. I, yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, uh, uh, that's it. I think Cohiba black, um, if you want a good, just middle of the road, uh, you want to try a name brand cigar, you want to get off of, um, I don't know, bin cigars or, or whatever. You've got a, a special event and you've got people that want to try cigars. Cohiba couldn't really go wrong. I don't think it's, it's it was consistent. It was consistent. Uh, it, it's all right. There's better cigars for the money. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, you can hand somebody a Cohiba and they're going to say yes, most likely. Yeah. So. And it's, it's just like uh, liquor, you know, like is, there's better there's better whiskey for cheaper than, you know, some of the big name brands that run multimillion dollar ads. And um, but it's got the recognition. So, you know, it's kind of a, a double edged sword, but it's not a bad it's not a bad uh, not a bad drink and not a bad cigar. So, right. Well, okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll pick you up next week. Everybody have a good week.